Okay, here we are. Our second uh, wrap-up of Moby Dick. I think this would be uh, chapters 24 through 60. So it's definitely not a weekly um, thing that I'm doing. It's kind of just uh, when the when the mood strikes me. Um, and it, it has struck me now. So uh, yeah, so I think this would just be a good opportunity for me to talk about I guess what what my expectations for this book were and what they kind of are. Um, I think my conception of Moby Dick was much more different than what it turned out to be. First, I think it's important to say that, you know, we are not even yet halfway through this book by chapters. And my view was that there was this sort of brutally boring chapter that I could never get past when I was reading it not allowed, you know, the cetology chapter, you know, and then that was the kind of the most boring, technical, non-narrative element in the story. But really, it seems like most of the chapters in this book are these reference guides for maritime traditions or types of rope or different positions on the ship, the hierarchy of the mates. And I feel like if we were to cut all of that out, all of these non-narrative chapters, the story would be remarkably short, which isn't to say that nothing happens. Uh, quite a bit has happened. Um, you know, our main character is depressed. He seeks uh, some remedy by going to the sea. He spends a night in New Bedford where he meets Quigquag. He takes liking to him quite a bit. He goes to a church. He hears a sermon. They go to Nantucket. They sign aboard the Pequod. They hear that the captain, who has not yet been seen, lost his leg in a battle with a legendary whale, uh, went briefly insane. You know, nothing to worry about there. Uh, they depart for the sea, and Ahab kind of whips the crew up into a frenzy and has them uh, swear that they're all going to go kill Moby Dick, sort of undercutting the mates. They see a whale, they chase it. There's an accident where all the men in one of the boats... Um, go overboard, but they're all rescued. This random whale escapes. Then they see a squid. That's it, right? That's kind of what the story is so far. So I think our baseline modern understanding of whale hunting is greater than your average person in 1850. Otherwise, I can't explain all the world building and explanation for things. What may sound tedious and unnecessary for us might have been really essential understanding for readers in a different time period. I'll also say that I'm not a literary critic. I'm not a historian, so this may be 100% false. Um, it, it's my conjecture that it feels like the novel is or the novel as a genre of story is much less realized and concrete and much more fluid uh, than I think what it is nowadays. The story is in the first person, and yet there's a few chapters where we actually get the internal monologue of Ahab and the mates, which is also in first person. There's a scene among all the sailors on uh, on the ship that's written in dialogue, as if it were a stage play or a movie, and of course, there are all these like reference guides and book recommendations. Um, so it doesn't feel like Moby Dick is a product, at least for me, it doesn't feel like Moby Dick is a product of radical literary experimentation. It feels more like the rules of what constitutes a novel it just has a much broader definition. 
You know, I recently finished reading Dune by Frank Herbert, and there are some undeniable similarities between uh, these two novels, mostly that they're just too fucking long. You know, but Herbert does all this kind of world building in the way that I think most modern fantasy or sci-fi, you know, how it's written nowadays. There's the kind of context clues release sort of little fragments of the world bit by bit so the reader isn't so the reader is sort of putting it all together over the course of the entire novel and this puzzle kind of comes together slowly a friend of mine pointed out that you know reading you know the hobbit or lord of the rings which were published in the you know late 1930s and then the lord of the rings published in the 1950s you know there's these long descriptions and histories of you know the shire for example or history of swords that get passed down uh you know uh, beowulf the you know that epic poem that you had to read in high school that you barely understood you know that has like long descriptions of like the genealogies of various lords that lived uh you know and hell even the bible does this you know the bible has There are big chunks of the Bible, which is just genealogy, which is just so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, you know, and so on. And this sort of all the information up front style seems to have really fallen out of fashion um, because, one, it's boring. And two, your audience just can't retain all the reference guides, which which author uh, took good images of whales and this one didn't you know it's just it's too much context so how should we think of moby dick as a novel and a work of fiction of course but also perhaps as a travelogue sort of my report from far away and what i found there in excruciating detail melville himself did extensive traveling by sailing ships if that wasn't obvious um you know some quick wikipediaing uh, led me to, to find that he had been to Polynesia, Australia, Hawaii, Lima, which come up, which came up in one of the chapters recently, Rio de Janeiro, Tahiti. You know, and I often wonder how much of a stand-in is Ishmael for Melville. Melville was born in New York City, where Ishmael starts the story. Melville worked as a school teacher for three or four years, same as Ishmael, and Melville spent five years at sea traveling. And I'm sure there have been a million you know, graduate papers written about the hybrid Ishmael Melville thing. Um, I haven't read any of them, and I'm sure that other people could talk at length about how similar or dissimilar the author and the narrator are. Uh, you know, but at any rate, um, I guess these are these are some of my thoughts on the non-narrative ele- elements in Moby Dick. I wish there were less of them. Uh, When he sticks to whale hunting and adventure on the high seas, it's great, and the poetry and the language is, like, gorgeous, and he clearly has a point of view, and there's some comedy in the fact that he's this kind of fish out of water, pardon the, you know, pardon the expression, uh, you know, of this guy who's quoting Latin and Greek mythology, and he's hanging out with a bunch of these lifelong sailors. I mean, that's the stuff I love. Even the totally disconnected story about steel kilt was great, kind of. Until, you know, one of the Spanish guys interrupts him and is like, what's a canaler? And Ishmael then had to educate the audience about the type of guys who worked on the Erie Canal and how they were cutthroats and land pirates, but also good upstate New Yorkers. I mean, I thought, 
I absolutely thought it was the most insane instincts to be like, then Steel Kilt struck Radney with the hammer and there was blood everywhere. Now let me tell you about the Erie Canal and an infrastructure project near Buffalo, New York. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, like, you really got to admire the dedication to the form you know, novel, novel as Wikipedia page, you know, when you have to say like, the call is coming from inside the house. Now by call, what we mean here is telephone and the old landlines. See, before cell phones, most homes in America had phone lines, sometimes two, where you could reach anyone in the family. Okay. Right. Enough. So yeah, I feel like I've slung enough mud at poor Melville today. You know, because while the history of certain boating traditions or coral formations or whatever is not my favorite, I still think um, I can make allowance for why they're included in the book. I, I, we can't think of these, this thing as a traditional novel. We got to think of it as something else. Okay, I think that's what I got for today. See you on Monday. <laughs>